0: Hey, broad beans. Today, I am interrupting our regularly scheduled programming to bring you a special live recording on March 13th, 2018. I had the great honor of sitting alongside Dr. Gregory Greeb, Dr. Vitzisler, and Helen Osman for a panel at South by Southwest titled Gaming Religion, Finding Faith in Digital Games. As it turns out, religion and games actually have a lot to say to one another. Religious themes have supported the storylines of many mainstream games, from World of Warcraft to Halo and even Civilizations. Gaming has also been described as a spiritual endeavor by avid gamers, and religious groups are increasingly creating and using games to counter religious stereotypes and to teach members about core beliefs and practices. In the hour ahead, you will hear a unique discussion about the ways that religion, ethics, and digital games intersect through the lens of research, development, and education. You may recognize Dr. Grief from episode 5, Imagining Play, Religion, and Education, and I am over the moon to have the voices of Dr. Sisler and Helen Osman on this channel for the first time. One of my favorite, absolute favorite parts of being on a panel is getting to know my fellow panelists, and I'm so happy that y'all get the Chance to know them too. Thanks and stay tuned.
1: My name is Helen Osmond. I'm moderating our panel today. And we're going to do, um, I'll, I'll do brief introductions for everyone, and then each person has a brief presentation. we got a little PowerPoint here, but we really wanted to give plenty of time for Q&A so we could kind of dive deep into this discussion. So um, here on my left, Greg Grieve is a professor and head of the Religious Studies Department at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He researches and teaches at the intersection of digital culture, religion, and Asian traditions. Vit Zissler is an assistant professor of new media studies at Charles University in Prague. His research focuses on serious video games, information technologies in the Middle East, and Islam and digital media. He's also a lead designer of the award winning video game on contemporary history, Attentat 1942, which is a 2018 IGF finalist in excellence in narrative. Very exciting. And at the uh, far end, the other bookend here, is Jamie Dale Malandine, who's an educator and a writer exploring the intersections of games, religion, social action, and other forms of meaning-making. She currently coordinates education programs at a local synagogue and is the Girls Who Code site lead here in Austin. She's also the host of the Gaming Broad. Past, an internet radio show about games. So, welcome to all of you. And I think, Vip, you start? No, no I right, start.
2: Um, you may have seen me in a video just a moment ago. <laughs> uh, but my name is Greg Grieve, and I teach uh, at religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Um, and basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a like a two, three minute introduction for the whole panel, and then I'm going to give maybe eight to ten minutes on my own research. All right. so. Um, I don't, I don't, know if you read Sherlock Holmes, but there's the, the one story which is, uh, The Silver Blaze in which the, 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 the proof was that the dog did not bark. Um, and so that's what proved the murder mystery. So I don't know, again, if you haven't read it, you should probably go ahead and do that. But, anyways, <laughs> and, and so one of the interesting things is when we started this field about 15 years ago, um, the question was, why had no one studied religion in video games? Why had, because once you start looking, it's actually all over the place. But, you know, the question is, why had no one actually done it yet? What was kind of, what was under, right under your nose? Why why were people ignoring it? And we found over the years, we found three, or actually I added a fifth one, five things here. Um, <laughs> One is that it's uh, video games are seen as young people's entertainment, so this was not something that was serious. This was something just for kids, so that was one reason. A uh, second one was um, it, it was an undervalued form of expression, and so video games up until recently were not even covered by free speech. I guess it's not recently anymore, but up until 2006, they weren't even considered um, a form of art, um, so they're undervalued. Um A third one we saw, which is that technology is secular. So there was this notion that you, somehow religion was this ancient, ancient tradition, but that, um, which shouldn't be using new media for its transformation. So there's like this kind of this, this, this was also going on. and then the other one was the game worlds are unreal. So basically that anything that happens within a game world somehow is not real. It doesn't actually count. So that was the third one. And then I added this fifth one because this is what I've been thinking about lately, which is um, video games. There's a lot of these moral panics. Like if you remember Death Race. Um, actually, it just happened. Uh, Trump was tweeting about how uh, the last shooting was caused by video games. So there's always this kind of moral panic which floats around video games. So I think that's a, another reason. Um So, the thing is, once you start looking at it, there's just lots of religion in video games, um, and it's so, it's an interesting thing. So the, why, why study religion in video games, right? So the question is why even bother doing it? Um, and so what we found is that video games help, help us understand what religion is, does, and means in our contemporary culture. So the same way that, um, for the 20th century, if you studied film, um, I think you can have a sense of what religion was like there, or maybe television. I think video games help us understand what religion is in contemporary society more than other medias, um, because it's a media which is, in, has been shaped by to contemporary society the most. Um, why the Martian? Uh, if if you imagine, I always, this is something I always talk about, if you imagine a Martian coming down into people playing games and someone maybe engaged in some type of ritual, it would be hard for the Martian to know which was a game and which was a ritual. So what is play and what is religious practice? And from an outsider's formal perspective, um, It's hard to tell which is which, you know, Um, and so religions illustrate how religious practice and place share many formal similarities. They look the same from an outside position. Um, So it helps you it helps you think about those two. Um, And then we've been thinking about games for change. So like religion, video games can you know, can they be ethical systems which make the world a better place? So these are kind of the what was behind our different what we're going to talk about doing during this talk. Um, so again, I uh, just say, so I'm a scholar of religion and video games. That's what I study. VIT is a designer of video games. And then, uh, Jamie, uh, uses video games for actual religious practice. So this is how we were thinking of how this is set up. And I'm going to hit my clock so I don't go over.
3: Do you want to kick me? What? <laughs> Like, can I yeah, you want to make good
0: science. <laughs> yeah. have to get um, up and tap them on the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the last big project
2: I did was actually I looked at online meditation in Second Life. you remember what Second Life was, this was actually most of the research was done about 10 years ago. Um, the book actually came out um, last year with Rutledge, and it started actually um, – and I should say, I'm a practicing Buddhist. So this was, um, this was part of my interest was I got on, I got on Second Life and I typed in Buddhism and to see what was there. And I found that people were sitting, meditating online together. Um, so I, you know, I teleported over there and I found a bunch. Of, so if you imagine you're in a, a big Zendo, a big meditation hall, and there's avatars who are parked on these different meditation cushions um and they're and they're meditating. So, and of course, um as a practicing Buddhist, my response was, you can't do that. Right? Um and so I'm an ethnographer. That's a, that's the method I use. And basically, I think what ethnographers uh, ethnographers do is they basically um you study problems which you, you study things which are problematic to you. So basically, I wanted to understand how people were doing online meditation. Um and kind of the, the, the basic of ethnography is that maybe individual people are idiots. Groups of people are not idiots. Groups of people have reasons for doing what they do. So why is it that where people were sitting online? Um and the thing that got me the most was uh the guy I was sitting with was, was next to was in the shape of a bear. <laughs> and so this guy who was Bodhidharma, um, he became one of my my main informant over the next three years or so. Um and and he, w- he was often in bare form uh, meditating. So, and again, this is a form of play, but this was something which they took very seriously. Um, and again, uh, this is where, uh, this is the book that came out last year in which I basically outline this in more detail. Um, and so the question for me was... Um, and again, this is a, a picture from Second Life from the Buddhist community. And my question that really started out the research was, um, why did Bodhidharma go online? Um, what, why was it that, that he um, wanted, you know, what did he see beneficial in meditating online? Um, and that that's what drove the study. And, you know, again, so, and, and I had, and basically I wanted to know for something which I thought was not possible or it seemed... You know, why was he doing this? And again, my job as an ethnographer was to figure out why someone would do this and not just dismiss them as somehow being wrong. Um, So the usual response is... um, you know, this is when I would talk to people about it. Uh, because it's a game in a digital virtual world, Second Life Buddhism is not authentic. And again, if you want to ask me what I mean by authentic, I probably over-theorize this term. But basically, it's not real. It's not something that's actually spiritual. And that's how, that's how people would usually talk about this. Um, but if you actually start looking at things, you see that, um, games, and religion have always been intertwined. So just all the way back to the oldest games, to the invention of dice, to the invention of dolls, religion has always been part of games. Less so since the, uh, the creation of the printing press. Um, but if you go back and again, if you just think about the Olympics, which just happened, the Olympics were originally um, a mixture of games and religion. So it's, it's almost, again, we're the abnormal ones that we want to separate these two things out from each other. Um, And the other one was this was happening online. So, again, one of the things if you start looking at religion and digital media is you find out that different traditions treat it differently. So if you have a Catholic, Protestant or Jewish approach, it's going to be different from a Buddhist approach. They're all different from each other. Um, And Buddhists, for the most part, aren't too concerned about what media our language, the teachings are transmitted in, which is different from other traditions. Uh, uh, you know, think about Latin in the Catholic Church, um, Arabic in, um, Islam, uh, so Hebrew in Judaism. So it depends more. Buddhists don't have that as much. So there may be a certain affordance about Buddhism online because of this. They don't have this prejudice, this bias. So what did I learn after, you know, after three years of ethnography and really five years of writing this book up? Um, if authentic means mimicking classic Buddhist texts, Second Life Online meditation is not authentic. It does not mimic what you would see in an Asian temple. It does not mimic what you would find in a um, Buddhist scriptures. Um, it has family resemblances to it. And there's certain like kind of cherry picking of certain themes, um, but it's not authentic in a sense of mimicking what's going on. Um, Yet, if they are judged existentially by how they enable users to respond to the suffering of contemporary world, then the Second Life consists of authentic spiritual practices. So for the people practicing it, this was something real. This is something that did something in their life. This is something that was spiritual and religious for them. So judged from that perspective... It, it, it was authentic. Um, and if you think about Buddhism, it's the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to end suffering. For the people in who were sitting online, it actually did that. It helped them deal with the suffering of contemporary society. And, and if you want, I can tell you about how they said that worked. But um, I want to give time for you guys to talk. <laughs> um, so finally, the significance. Um, people do not stop being religious when they log on. And while often playful and even whimsical, second-life Buddhist practices allow users to imagine alternative spiritual templates. So it wasn't just about copying. It was about kind of innovation and creating new forms of community, new types of identity, and new forms of religious practice in this space. Um, And for me, that was the most interesting part um, because a lot of these transferred out of that virtual world, which almost worked like a sandbox, and they were using them in in their everyday lives too. And I think that's it. So, again, thank you all. And I'll hand it over
3: to <laughs>
2: <laughs> I yeah.
3: I you. Hi. So, uh, my name is Viet. Uh, I'm from Charles University in Prague, from Czech Republic. And I will talk about the representation of Islam and Muslims in the video games. Yeah. First, uh, I'm, I'm a scholar of uh, in game studies, so I do research on video games, and among other, I do research on religion and video games. This is a book we have just published, uh, "Methods for Studying uh, uh, Video Games and Religion." And second, uh, beyond being scholar, I'm also a video game. Uh, I'm involved in video game development, so I was the lead game designer of Attentat 1942," which just came out, uh, and which is uh, yeah, it's like nominated uh, to IGF uh, in accents and Narrative. And actually being a video game designer myself helped me a lot doing my research. I kind of spent the last decade, it was like kind of like larger project on studying representations of Islam and Muslims in video games. I lived two years in Cairo, one year in Damascus and several months in Tehran. And what I did is I interviewed the... Uh, video game designers uh, in the Middle East and I also studied like hundreds of games which deal with representation of Islam and Muslims produced in the United States and Western Europe. So what I will present today is kind of a summarization, uh, summarization of the main trends from this research and if you would like to see more details, more deeper analysis or like statistical data then go and check my articles or send me an email, I will send you everything uh, I've got. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> So, and also the topic of representation is actually kind of personal to me. Uh, I grew up in communist Czechoslovakia and I used to love video games. We played video games a lot uh, in our, in our like teenage and, and, and early childhood. And most of the games we used to play in communist Czechoslovakia were actually produced in the US or in Western Europe. There were almost no, there was almost no domestic production in Czechoslovakia beyond some like really uh, easy, like small text based games. And I in particular remember one game which I played when I was like, like 10, which is called NATO Commander. It's a game produced by the US company Microprose. And in the game, you are sworn in as a new NATO NATO commander for like NATO commander and your task is to attack and destroy Warsaw Pact forces in Eastern Europe. And the game is based on realities, real maps and real deployment of units. And in the very initial phase of the game, your task is to attack and destroy or bomb and destroy Prague. And I'm I'm, I'm from Prague.
1: <laughs>
3: and I was playing this game as a kid and till today I remember kind of like weird or odd feeling and tension between Like wanting to win the game at one hand, and being represented as the the enemy or as the bad guys, you know, on on the on the other hand. And I would say, to some extent, this applies to the representation of Muslims uh, today in video games. So, first thing, the in-game representations of Muslims uh, in video games have to be—it's not an isolated thing; it's not like an isolated phenomena, and it has to be kind of covered or think about within the broader framework in which uh, Islam and Muslims are represented in mainstream news and popular media in the in, in, in West. And there's a tons of research about that, which, and the results of the research can be very roughly schematized, but roughly summarized as uh, Islam is likely to be linked with terrorism, the representation of ordinary Muslims is marginalized, and a conflicture framework dominates uh, the, the, the news and popular culture. The letter is to one particular group of video games dealing with Islam and Muslims, which I called like virtual battleground or virtual virtual enemies. Those are typically first-person shooters or strategy games, which take place in uh, fictitious or real Middle Eastern countries. And uh, typically in these games, you can play US or coalition forces. And uh, most of these games schematize Muslims heavily uh, as enemies in the framework of uh, international terrorism and fundamentalism. Like a button, a city, or a As- sold. like dozens and or, like hundreds of these games. Then there is actually another kind of uh, type of schematization or representation of uh, Islam and Muslim video games, which I personally label digital orientalism. Those are typically like uh, uh, role-playing games or adventure games, which. Uh, take place in some kind of like Orient and they uh, navigate players through bazaars, harems and deserts and you can meet like jinns caliphs and belly dancers and typically what these games do is they, uh, it's like an kind of assemblage of... uh, visual imagery from different times and different places, which is like lumped together into one exotic and historic representation. So typically you can find like palaces from Granada next to palaces from the Mughal times in India. And you can see like, yeah, like, and in both of these like categories of schematization, one important thing is that all like the multifaceted and very diverse ethnic and religious identities of the Islamic world are kind of schematized together into one, one monolithic representation. It's like typically a like a dark-skinned, a dark-skinned uh, character with, uh, with 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 uh, with uh, uh, some kind of head cover. Okay, so uh, yeah, when I actually interviewed the game designers in, in, in the Islamic world, uh, most of them are actually aware of these misrepresentations and it actually matters to them. They like this, From most of the interviews, uh, I've kind of uh, got, the, like, got the answers that they really care and they really kind of perceive games as something which has a message. And the, 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 this is actually what Robin Kasmia told me in Damascus, he's a uh, Syrian game designer. He told me, most video games on the market are anti-Arab and anti-Islam. Arab gamers are playing games that attack their culture, their beliefs, and their way of life. Uh, this similar answer I got from designers like in Egypt, in, in, in Iran, in Syria, in Qatar, uh, there exists, and most of these designers, they kind of try to overcome this misrepresentation by their own production. And the ways how they try to create their own virtual authentic representations actually varies a lot. There's like a range of uh, different strategies and different like approaches. One is actually an approach I label digital resistance. And these are typically games, like first-person shooters, which basically substitute the American soldier for Muslim hero. So these are typically first-person shooters in which you play Muslim hero and you engage uh, in an armed struggle with the United States or Israel. It's like, like Kuala Khassa made by, uh, made by uh, Lebanese Black Movement. Uh, Amalia Vijay is made by uh, uh, Iranian Student Union, so supported by the government. These games are produced either by like independent producers or they are state-supported. Like, for example, in Iran, there's like a national Institute for Computer Games, which actually supports production of games, which kind of stress the Iranian and Islamic values. What uh, is game duty? So these games are like political, uh, and they're actually directly they are d- they're like part of the propaganda war or like cultural war with the United States. Like they are perceived as like like kind of like a, co- a communication uh, co- communication uh, kind of tool for yeah for culture war. Uh, Nevertheless, if you actually play these games and you really examine them closely, what you see, they actually appropriate very closely the conflictual framework from from, from U.S. games, like, for example, America's Army, and they just reverse the polarities. But, like, uh, structurally, they are exactly the same, you know, they, they just play a different hero. There is actually quite radically different approach uh, to... Uh, authentic representation. And it's actually found in many games. This example, this example is a game Quraysh, made by Syrian company of Media. There's actually a lot of uh, video game developers which do perceive video games as a tool for culture dialogue with the West or like a tool for kind of like a communication. Quraysh is a, uh, it's actually a strategy game which deals with uh, Bedouin pre-Islamic culture and the spread and origin and spread of Islam. And in the game, you you actually visit like historical places, and you learn a lot about Islam and about the, the the beginning of Islam. And importantly, you can play the game from four different perspectives. So you can play it as a pagan pagan Bedouins. Muslim Arabs, Christian Byzantinians, or Zoroastrian Iranians. So like in the game, there are deliberately four different perspectives and four different religious traditions of the time being presented. And quite, they really do try to do a like good representation, good kind of like good representation of the, of the historical, historical, uh, period. The game is, as I said, deliberately perceived as a way of culture dialogue. So this game is available in, in, in Arabic and English. What, <laughs> Technology.
0: Yeah.
3: So, what Radwan Kasmia, the lead designer of the game, told me, uh, he told, basically told me they are, through the game, they are trying to build a bridge and they are trying to break stereotypes, modes of thinking on, on both sides. And you can find a lot of games like these in, in Egypt or in, in Iran or in in, in other countries. Uh, it has to be said, and kind of returning back to the representation, it has to be said that even in uh, mainstream Western or U.S. production, you can actually find uh, examples of non-schematized and very balanced and nuanced representation of, 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 of Islam and Muslims. One good example is the Civilization series, it's a strategy game in which you play a lot of like uh, yes, civilizations, and this series actually includes several virtual religions, and this really tries to, basically all religions in this game are equal. And all of them are exactly the same effects and, and, and bonuses and statistics. Uh, and also the game includes encyclopedia and does a really good job introducing to players the basic concept of Islam and, uh, and prominent Muslim figures. And more recent example is, for example, the game Overwatch, uh, being released by Blizzard in 2016. It's actually a game which uh, uh, includes two playable Egyptian characters, which are distinctively Egyptian, and they have do- they own... Kind of their own uh, background and their own story, so that you can like play you can like play them as one of the characters among others. So they're actually, yeah, they 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 are mainstream video games which do actually try and do good, quite a good job in in non-schematizing uh, uh, Islam and Muslims. Kind of to conclude, uh, I would say that uh, from the interviews I did in the Middle East, it's kind of clear that the m- video games and representation of video games does matter to video game designers and, and gamers. Uh, also, most of the video game designers in the Islamic world, they do not perceive video games as entertainment. They do perceive them as a powerful tool for communication or like for, for yeah, as a powerful platform for communication. And finally... Uh, non-schematic and balanced representation of the other is actually possible in video games. And we as video game designers kind of have the means to do the informed decisions and choices while designing our games to kind of have these non-schematized representations. So thanks for your attention and...
0: Oh, I have my own. I have my own. Thank you. Hello. I'm so excited to get to do like yoga with this clicker, which seems to be what everyone else is doing. (laughs) Um, So my name is Jamie Dale. I work at a synagogue here in Austin. Actually, I have some representation up front here. Yay. Um, Very nice. So I'm going to talk about the ways that we use games in our synagogue. Um, So I called it pachking around with Jewish education. It's a Yiddish word. It means to like fiddle or play around with or mess around. Am I right? Yes. All right, cool. I <laughs> approval up front. And I should start by saying that our office is incredibly playful. Um, you have me, who's a video game nerd. We have a aerial artist who does, if you know, like what the circus is and like the silks and climbing up. She's taking a picture of me now, actually. Uh, we have one of those. My boss, the director of youth education engagement, might as well be a Buffy scholar as far as I'm concerned. Um, so we spend a lot of time being playful, and that actually plays out in the way that we teach our kids, um, which this is one of my favorites. Jordan, last year, is one of our end-of-the-year things. We did a live-action Pokemon Go game that was Jewish-themed which was very exciting. You can't read these, but they're filled with like these great puns. We have like Goldine Mir, which is an Israeli uh, prime minister. There we go. Oh, God. I did not make these cards, apparently. Um, we have Schnorr, which is Yiddish for lazy, who's the snoozy Pokemon. Um, so basically we had these really wonderful Jewish-themed Pokemon cards, and what we did is we sent teens out into a field wearing a Pokemon mask, and then our smaller students would go around and throw these foam Pokemon balls at them, and then they would get asked a trivia question that was great, specific to what they had learned that year and if they got it right they got one of these Pokemon cards and at the end depending on what Pokemon cards you got it changed which teens you were able to choose to fight in the final arena and we did not have them like physically fight but they did play like Gaga which is like an Israeli dodgeball kind of thing. Um, A lot of screaming ensued. It was quite a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, So games leak into the way that we teach. And this was a fun end of the year celebration in a way that we could kind of highlight the year and what they learned in a fun, interactive and bodily way. So the ways that games are used are pretty much how games are used in most places, right? So we play games in our classes to learn Jewish content. Um, We play games to learn Jewish values. And the part that I'll talk a lot about at the end, is we also make games in Jewish environments, or what I called games made Jewishly. So I'll start with some examples of some games with Jewish content. Oh man. Yeah, there you go. I knew, I knew It's like the arm. I think it's the elbow. So <laughs> educational games. <Sorry>. Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's adorable. That's cute content. Thanksgiving. <laughs> how exciting Um, so (laughs) that kid is way cuter than my presentation we should just look at kids all day Um, so educational games like games with Jewish content um, this is an example it's an online flash game where you learn the alphabet which is um, basically the basic components of the Hebrew language they're often really boring Um, much like secular education games not all educational games are bad but many of them kind of miss the mark when it comes to entertaining there are other games with Jewish content that I don't have up here like Shiva which is a game where you play an Orthodox Jewish rabbi in New York it's like a murder mystery type thing Um, it's super fun fun. You should play it. We didn't use it in class, though, because it didn't... <laughs> It was a little, it was a little too fun. Um, so we also, you have things like Jewish Time Jump, which is made by Convergent, which is a Jewish educational video game company, and it's a mobile, augmented, like, place-based game where you're actually a time-traveling journalist going back in time to the 1900s to Greenwich Village to learn about labor practices. Um, super fun. We haven't done this in our school because you have to be in New York, so if you go to New York, download it and play it. Super fun. Um, so this one actually doubles as an addition to having Jewish content, also talks about Jewish values, um, fair labor practices, right? So the game brings up a lot of questions about what is fair labor, what are fair labor practices in the 21st century. Other games we've used or that I've used in class are a game called Spent. It's an online game about surviving poverty and homelessness. I used it in my social action track, basically. It had zero Jewish content. There were, as far as I know, uh, nothing on there said Jewish, so they didn't use any Yiddish, so as far as I know, probably not Jewish. Um, So we used that to learn about the Jewish value of like poverty and caring about others and all of that stuff. So before I go further and talk about games made Jewishly, I want to clarify really quickly what Jewish education is. Um, So Jewish education oftentimes when someone talks about it, they're talking about kind of out of school usually weekend based education that Jewish kids go to um Christians have like Sunday school Jews also go to school on Sunday, but it's a little bit different. Uh, we learn Torah, we learn Hebrew, we learn um, history we just a lot of stuff we learn ethics values all of that stuff um, so that's what we do at our school and depending on where you are that Jewish education looks different so I'm at a reform synagogue so the way that we teach is going to be different than how an Orthodox synagogue teaches it and it's going to be different than how conservative synagogues teach it um, but they all broadly try to ask and answer these three questions which is what stories do we tell what has power over us and for whom are we responsible the way that this question is asked and the answers that we give are different um, and sometimes we don't have answers sometimes we just ask these questions <laughs> to kids and be like have fun um you tell us what you think and it's really it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun um so to give you some corollary what stories do we tell those would be like our foundational narrative so what story torah is often like but what stories is in the Torah it's kind of, well it's a little book but a lot of, a lot of stories in a little book um, what has power over us that would be conversations about God and obligations of um, in Judaism, that would be like meets, vote, or rituals, things like that. And then for whom are we responsible? So those are questions about identity and community and people outside of your community and how you should be interacting with people. Um, so all of those will look different depending on who you're talking to. But for the most part, we talk about these things. So what does this have to do with games? Um, so it's starting to be that... People are thinking about what it means to not just know Jewish things, but to live Jewishly. And this is actually a really age-old question, right? Like, what does it mean to live a Jewish life? giggling at these three. I have to like block you out. Um, so what does it mean to live a Jewish life? And so we're getting kind of some fun, interesting camps that are coming up around this topic. So this is the URJ summer camp, six points Sci tech Academy. It's a Jewish STEM summer camp. Um, and the interesting thing about it is kids go there for three weeks and they're going to learn a lot about STEM stuff. So they learn robotics and video game design and chemistry. They blow things up, which is super exciting. They call it the Boker big bang. It's like every Shabbat, something catches on fire. Um, Fun stuff. And the interesting thing is, while they do do Jewish stuff there, like they do Shabbat, they do a lot of the rituals, the things that they're making don't necessarily have to have Jewish content, but the way that they make it is through a Jewish lens. So we ask questions about. Values. So the five values of URJ SciTech is connection, curiosity, discover, patience, and respect. And they have the Hebrew corollaries. But so every time they make something, they're asked to frame those things through those values and to talk about what it means to make those as a young Jewish person. Um, this one's mine. <laughs> this is my Jewish Girls Who Code group. They're delightful and very weird. That's our little um, LED Hanukkah up there it was on Hanukkah. It was very exciting. Uh, so, at Jewish Girls Who Code, Girls Who Code is a national organization. We brought a chapter to our temple. Um, throughout the year, they learn how to code, and they're asked to do a community impact project, which basically means they're asked to see a problem in the community and make something to try to make it better. So, in our club, our girls chose the issue of stress and mental health. They Thought that that was the biggest issue in their community for students, and so some of them made some game-like things. Um, none of them had Jewish content that I know of. One of them was a werewolf time-traveling story, like narrative text-based story. Another one was a maze game that was timed to show how being timed during tests decreases performance. Um, and what was oh, a third one was more of an interactive gift, but. It was a unicorn playing a saxophone, jazz against like a waving Canadian flag that you could make dance. Um, And her logic behind that was laughter helped her de-stress, so she wanted to make other people laugh. So all of these things were through the lens of of decreasing stress, and at the end of the year, we asked them how their Jewish identity affected what they made. And for each girl, that was a wildly different answer, because these are all very individual, unique girls who have different answers to questions of what it means to be Jewish. Um, And they also have different hobbies, different interests, other identities that are intersecting with their Jewish one. So this brings me back to why I really like using game development as a tool in Jewish education. And it's actually because these three questions are kind of the same questions you ask when you're doing game development, right? Like, what stories are you telling? Like, what's the story of the game that you're making? What has power over us? You could think of that like, business wise, like in terms of funders, like who has power over this game that we're making, the people working on it. But you could also think of it in terms of game mechanics. When you're doing a game mechanic, you're kind of limiting what kinds of things you can do in a world, right? So you're limiting the power or what power players have in that universe. And for whom are we responsible really gets at the question that Vip brought up about, like, what kind of impact does this game have on the world around us? Um, and for different developers, what they care about, is different, like for whom they are responsible is a different group of people, right? Um, So I think when I'm thinking about games and how to use them in a religious environment in a way that makes people more ethical, I really love coming at it from a game development lens because the way that game development is set up already mirrors the way that we're trying to teach our young kids how to both live Jewishly but also live ethically, which is a fun combo. And I think I'm going to hand it off to Ellen now. Yes. Yes. Very good.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. So we have kind of a broad but also deep um, panel here. So I want to open it up now if anyone has any questions or, or reactions. Uh, just if you want to go ahead and, and uh, go to the mic, if you don't mind. Um, let people.
3: I can pass the mic. Also.
1: Well, th- yeah, we, they're okay. They're set up up there.
0: Thanks guys. That was really interesting. I won for each of you. For Professor Grief, I want to know if the Buddhism that people performed in the video game um had any sort of like application in real life that was in the book for Professor Sisler. Um I think that like the otherization that was so prevalent in in both the enemy or also the like I realize I have Jeff Fur, and it's an exotic orientalism card game, and I was like, "Fuck, I'm racist too." Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so how we can kind of create more of those collaborative, like educational ones, and if they have any market value? If you saw that, and then for Jamie, are you sharing with other synagogues the the game development that you guys are creating? Yes. So, thanks.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so just um. I'm going to answer this two ways. The first one is, I'm always interested why when we log on, we think we go somewhere else. So there's this notion that when you log on, you're going into some other space, some other place. And again, I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, because again, you're still sitting there, right? I mean, you're sitting, so of course it had... It, it, you know, because they weren't really going anywhere. They were. Um, but it is different because they're, you're interacting with people from all over the world, right? So it is different. Um, but, so of, co- of course it changed their lives because they were, it changed how their bodies were doing things. Um, but more really to your point, um, a lot of, so most of the people on there would stay only for about six months and then would log off. So they would kind of log on and you could watch this kind of cycle. The people leading the, the group would, were on there they're still on there. So they've been on there for over 10 years, but they were on there because they thought they were doing a service of having this space. Most people thought of it almost like a training wheels. And so that they would get their practice going and then they would go off and, find other ways to practice in real life. And um, so that's, that's, that's how it seemed to change people. And I can go into it more deeply if you want, but I want to leave other people time to talk.
0: I have a question. Yeah. Sorry, a follow up question for your your answer. Yeah. Um, did you have folks on there that had accessibility issues also in terms of using it? Yeah. So there was,
2: there was a few people who were um, bed bound. Um, and so they, this was a way for them to interact and meditate and have a practice when they couldn't otherwise. So it's there in those, those people tended. to tended to stay on for longer periods of time. So they would be on there for years um, because this was the only way they could, they could interact in with other people and some people from like small villages, like in Alaska and things like this, but I'm not going to, I won't go into all of it, <laughs> but I'll let it, oh
3: yeah. um, Okay. Well, there is like an important thing which is uh, actually I approved it from uh, appropriated it from Greg, which is like called critical play. So you don't necessarily need to you know abandon games you love just because they contain uh, or you realize they contain representation which are, or you know issues which you're uh, which you're not happy with. It's, it's it's actually like as any other medium you can pl- you can perceive games critically. So like you can you know like uh, critically kind of uh, approach what you are consuming as, as you would do in visible etc. And there are actually many games like for example you know, this. Digital Orientalism, like very prominent example of digital Orientalism, is actually the first very very first Prince of Persia, which uh, I don't know if you remember it from from the 80s. Yeah? It was actually absolutely awesome game. It was like a milestone in animation and milestone in game design. But the author of the game actually he was inspired by One Thousand and One Night, and so he like kind of created this like imaginary Persia, which is exactly what I was talking about. If you play the game, the first scene is actually happening in Granada, in the Cordoban Caliphate, and then you move to like some other, other space and time. So it's actually an assemb- assemblage of different historical pieces and clothes, etc. And when I was in Iran, uh, most of the game designers I talked to, they were really deeply concerned and irritated by this game. And particularly by the fact that in this game, they said that Iranians are portrayed either as Arabs or as Indians, and they were really pissed off that they are, you know, like, misrepresented by that way. And actually one one developer even, like, made his own game called Quest of for Persia, which was kind of like reaction to, to Prince of Persia. So uh, I would say that the, the, when you do, like, a video game design, you don't necessarily have to do educational or serious game. You know, it can be mainstream game, which is fun, which is, like, which is like uh, there for commercial success. Just like uh, make sure, like, if you represent certain, like, you know, like, 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 like pay attention to to representation of, of, of the other. It doesn't necessarily be educational game, you know, like, if, if Prince of Persia could have remained the same game, just, you know, with some kind of, uh, it, the, the game would be as, as good if it is like actual real real imagery of the real uh, ancient Persia. Uh, and actually today there are games which are more and more, I would say, informed, uh, and they kind of give, give voices to, to the communities they, they, they represent. So, so th- th- there's definitely the trend, seeing it's like more kind of like major content of games which are for more, I don't know, informed players. Or
2: woke. <laughs> yeah. can, I, can I put my ears? Yep. Um, <laughs> cut my
1: <own. laughs> Um
2: Yeah, so I, I think it's important to realize that players aren't moral zombies. Right. They're not they're not. They. You know, it, there's just a lot of the um, studies somehow assume there's kind of this force. Players are victims. They're both victims and guilty at the same time. And there's like this game is forced down upon them. But, you know, like when I play GTA, a lot of times I don't I I don't shoot people. Right. I just like take cars around and have fun. So there's different you can play the same game in different ways. And one of the interesting things about even games which are you may think is unethical is that they they show you what you think is ethical. So, if there's something in a game environment that you don't want to do for some reason, um, it's showing you your own ethical boundaries in a sense. So, even you know, even games which you may, may seem unethical to you in a sense can be played ethically in other ways.
0: And in terms of sharing, and since we're on an ethics panel. I'm pretty sure Nintendo would sue us if we shared those Pokemon Go cards. I'm pretty sure it's, like, highly illegal. So we haven't shared those other than you, so you all got, like, the sneak peek. Um, In terms of the games that the girls make, they keep them. So they share them with their friends. A lot of them are small. Um, Since so much of the focus is on the development process and on their rationality and their feelings with each other and actually building bonds with one another, we actually focus less on the product. And at the end, they're free to do whatever they want with them. And I have seen them... Uh, share around with girls and they like have their girls who code stickers on their laptops. So they're really proud and talk about that process a lot, but we haven't like put them on steam or anything.
1: Anyone else have a question or observation? I have a question for you all. It, you know, we, um, you talked about the stereotype of gaming as being violent and, and all of this, but I'd like
2: to flip that question a little bit and ask each of you: Can games make you more ethical? I'll let Jamie, go first. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But I
0: have I have a flip to that question, though. So other people should answer the question sincerely before I flip it. We'll go to VIT. We'll play Hat it.
3: Okay, I can I can start like uh, because I I did like research on so many religious video games, and what oftentimes these and. In like christ like Christian video games, Muslim video games or Jewish video games, oftentimes what they do is they kind of present you with like a kind of like they're educational in a way they present you how things should be, so like they can like give you some kind of fixed narrative you should remember or you know replay or whatever, but most of these games where they fail they don 't really let you explore ethical choices by your own gameplay i think that 's that 's like a really uh, the point where games have really kind of interesting power that they can uh present you with ethical choices and then and, and make make you contemplate these choices uh so and that's this kind of like a, where i would say games probably can make you, I, i'm not sure about the impact that's like like uh it's really hard to say that if you consume certain Content of a medium, what impact is on you, because there are so many factors involved. You know, there's like no, it's not like a single process where you consume this content and it's a, this impact on your, on your, uh, it changes you in such and such way. It's always interaction between the player, your surrounding, and your values and the game. But there are actually games which I would say can make you think about ethical choices by presenting you with like tough decisions for example like a good example is this one of mine i don't know if you if you played the game by polish studio it's a game based on civilian perspective from the uh, besieged sarajevo and you play the game as a civilian trying to survive and the game presents you it's it's a really, like it's very like serious uh tough and uh, yeah disturbing game disturbing game but it it presents you with a lot of like choices which are are like we have to think about them so i think yeah games can do that like they can make you think
2: yeah so I, I, some some religion in games i think kind of just makes everything really shallow so if like you play uh, i don't know, people have played civilization but re- yeah yeah <clears throat> spent about 3 years of my life playing civilization <laughs> so um but and so if you reduce religion just to um affordances and game tokens, you know, so then and, and so like civilization kind of scrapes all religions and makes them the same and it just becomes a series of getting better points or not better points. And I you know and that's interesting um but I don't think that makes you a more ethical person. I don't think it even it makes you think that all religions are somehow the same. And there's reasons for why they did it and, and some of the reasons are good because it's one of the few places where Vitt and I were talking about this yesterday where Islam is treated the same as other religions because they're all basically the same. Everything's the same. And again, I was complaining that it made everything into Protestantism, but, um, uh, but, um, and so I don't know if that would make you more ethical, but I think playing, um, even playing games, like I've been playing a lot of Skyrim lately and and there's choices in there that you have to make. Um, and I think if you think about it critically, so you're mindful of what you're doing, uh, it can make you a more ethical person. Um, uh, the game forces you to make certain choices and whether you're going to do those choices or not. Um, and so, and again, I think it, a lot of it depends on the maturity of the user. So, <laughs>
1: um, that's the grandkids. So,
2: um, it, it makes you think about, you know, so, um, you know, I think, um, I think it is important to have, um, age restrictions and things on games because I think it, if you have, different people playing the game who are not mature ethically, it, it may not have the same impact. If you're a mature person, you're playing the game differently and you're playing it where it would give you some kind of ethical insight into both the game world, you know, um, you know, like what does, you know, again, GTA, which, you know, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean as a representation, but also the actions you have to take within the game make you think about your own ethical background. Right. So. Now you're gonna flip
0: it. I am gonna flip. Well, first I'm gonna agree. Um, I so I agree with both of those things in terms of thinking about something critically changes whether or not it can make you a more ethical person because thinking critically is what helps you be a better ethical person. Um, and in terms of there just not being enough data yet, actually, yeah, I don't know if games can actually make you more ethical yet, but I'm hopeful and I think we should try because why not? If games could make you better, how great would that be? Um, but I, I do think game development has a lot of power to make people better also because the, the design process requires you to be empathetic and to think about someone else. And the amount of research that you have to put into representing something, if done well and if done thoughtfully, as Greg said, really has the opportunity to change the minds um, of the community of game developers which could be a small team but that ripples out or it could be a huge team right like um, the folks who made overwatch like that's a huge team and the amount of research they had to do to do something in a very in a way that was seen as positive to such a large group of people because they represent a huge swath of humanity in their game like that has a huge impact on the people who make it um, so I really think playing them and making them has potential and I'd like to continue to invest investigate that
2: yeah so um why did you all come to the panel i mean there's like lots of places to sit in the world (laughs)
4: oh hi I'm a Catholic priest and um hello yeah and um I am here trying to investigate about faith based things at South by and uh I keep trying to meet Helen and we keep canceling (laughs) we have to cancel our meals but um I just want to support this I was expecting something completely different but this is wonderful I I have to be honest I didn't read the description so it's not (laughs) your fault I I really thought this was going to be and I, I'm, I don't want to take in this direction um, about some of the harassment that's happening online in gaming especially when I saw somebody involved with Girls Who Code I just thought oh we're going to be talking about some of that stuff that's going on but no this is great I've learned so much and I just would ask can where can we get a list of the good games you know not that I play a lot of video games but to let people know who are looking for good games for their kids to play
2: it's, should I go first
1: is there, yeah is there a review there is, there is, there
2: is a, there's a like if you google like, the like
1: rating system? Yeah, well there's
2: that but there's also a thing that's like if you I did this for all the video games I gave my son and I can't remember the name but it's a it's a, it's a google site that tells you it's got like real parents reviews or something like that and it tells you really what's going on in the games but um, I you know for me what I did oh I'm sorry I'm used to teaching to large classes. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, this way we'll record one. <laughs> I just said really brilliant things, Jamie. <laughs> I
0: know. I'm going to have to like make them up as like, yeah, um, I said that.
2: Yeah. So there's, there's, and I, you know, if I hack on the online for a while, I can find them. So there's places it's where parents post real reviews of video games. right? And, and that was useful. What's um,
4: about a list of
2: religious, religious, oh, there, and there's, there's another one It's by, uh, what's, um, what's his last name? There's, there's, so if you go, there's, um, there's, If you go to, there's, uh, there's, there's a, there's a Google site which lists all religious video games on it. And again, if I'd have to get online, it's by, um, oh, what's his name? Yeah, well, it will come his name. But so basically he's, he's listed all games that have something to do with religion on that site. And there's, I know there's a link from, um, Game Environments, which is, Game Environments, which is the journal of religion and video games. And there's a link over to it from there. Um, but yeah, so he lists them all on there. But, but, I, I think um, one of the things I think about video games is there's content, there's story, and then there's the procedural gameplay. And a lot of times people get stuck in just the content. So you could play a game like GTA or Skyrim and you could play it Jewishly, I think. I've had students try to play it Buddhist-ly where they don't do any violence. It doesn't work very well, but you know, but it teaches them about what that means. So I think even mainstream games, you can play in a, in a religious way. Um,
5: Uh, first i wanted to say thank you this panel was amazing um secondly i wanted to say thank you for the inclusion of civilization i'm glad to see that's (laughs) one of the better games on there um Third, I think it's interesting tying religion and ethics together because there's two games that I think of. One of them has a really strong, like, religious content, and that's Bioshock Infinity. There's this religious reverence for the Founding Fathers with almost zero ethical implications in it. Mm -hmm. And the other one was also just kind of shown in passing, which is Papers, Please. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ever want to take half an hour and make yourself feel like a terrible person, (laughs) Play papers, please. It's it's very critical of how you examine decisions, how how you how you make ethical decisions regarding other people's lives, and it has nothing to do with with religion. Um, and in answer to the question that brought me up here, um, I love video games, so that's my side of it. And I am married to a Presbyterian seminarian who is graduating in May, so she's going to be ordained to be a minister. So okay. she's like, you have to go. I don't care if I've got the kid. Go. <laughs> so thank you.
2: Um, I um We sort of do games for three to six-year-old brains, mm-hmm. and there's a strong neuroscience um, background to it. And so I came here thinking that I'd get exposed to various religions, which I did. But I guess my question here is, uh, these seem like games for older people, or older kids I should say. What sort of design or how would you structure
0: games for three or four-year-olds?
3: Yeah. So, so you're asking like what games should be for three or four-years-old? How um, would you design? How would you, des- how would you design? Well, uh, as a video game designer, uh, uh, I, I'll start. I jump in. I actually don't. Des- I don't design video games for three and four years old. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I do design serious games and we do design them for, for high school students. Uh, and and so it's like, let's say 12 plus. I know actually there's a, like my colleagues at Charles university, they do a lot of, like they do like research on, on uh, what is the impact of, for example, tablets and video games on, on uh, toddlers and like, yeah, like preschool kids. And we know that there are some benefits, but they are also like, uh, like, yeah, they're also like, you have to be cautious like about certain like um uh, limits uh the, the the exposure so i i don't design i don't design for, the, for for like uh these kids but i i know there are there actually exist a, a lot of like um developmental games for like yeah kind of like visual spatial orientation etc et but from most research we know is actually frankly like uh in this age if if you like the train, you know, if you interact with real objects in 3D world and with real people, it is actually kind of better impact uh, or on, on you than interacting with, with, with flat, flat screen, generally. But doesn't say that, that there is a, there is a positive impact the, the game can have, but kind of, uh, if you substitute it with real world and then real human beings, it's always kind of better. But there are training games, there are tra- like games like that for toddlers, and some of them are good. There's actually there's actually a website called cz where it's like a list of games, and list of risks Search which has been done on games for toddlers. So I, I can send you a link, but that is like. A, yeah, but, but me personally, I don't do that.
2: I don't design games. <laughs> I, mean, I, I talk a lot about game design, but I don't. You know, and I usually deal with <clears throat> actually games for. Adults really aren't. Teenagers and up, so I don't know. What do you do, you, you do kind?
0: Of. Yeah, but I'm, well, I'm teaching middle school and high school girls how to make games, so I don't know if they're making them for three- to four-year-olds. Um, there is something called BitsBox. I think it might be for a little bit older, but they exist. Um, I actually, not to make the game, but I'd love to see more resources, and I haven't written them, on how parents can talk to their kids about games to make that kind of critical conversation happen, because that's really where a lot of, I think, the, the development and... And the, the ethical upbringing is going to happen is in the conversations <laughs> kids have with the people around them concerning the media they're consuming more so than what the actual content of the media is.
3: So actually, if you like really want to design a game for three or four year old, then one important guideline which is there is uh, make sure the, the the game is slow pace and there are not uh, fast like cuts like that's 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 actually what it's not the content but it's often the form which can be problematic like for cognitive overload etc cetera, etc cetera. so like slow pace and not you know rapid movements and, and I some. But that's also what, what is typically in video games and so what's, sort of like, fascinating about video games. Yeah? So, uh, but that's kind of, like, a general guideline.
2: Yeah. I just can't, yeah, what are ahead. we doing? Are we doing time-wise? Okay. We're, we've got about three
3: more minutes. All right, I'll, I'll
2: try to use two. <laughs> no, right. yeah, right. um, I was going to say, um, so I was raised by hippies, basically, and um, and um, uh, we we were not really allowed to interact with media them. I mean it's like they're, they're trying to trying to keep us sheltered from the media and I think in some ways that's actually a bad tactic. And I think um and I remember I had a friend Colorado Blue Skies who came over and he just like devoured all the sugary food in our house because he wasn't allowed to have any. So I think if and so for me what I try to do when raising my children is um to engage with mainstream media but to do it in a critical fashion so that we would talk about what they were seeing and not really shelter them as much. And maybe, I don't know if this will, they haven't, they're not adults yet. So we'll see how it goes. Um, so that's always been my tack. But again, I, but when they were young, I didn't, uh, we didn't really, I didn't, my, my wife wanted everyone, wanted my children only to have wooden toys. So that was, <laughs> but later on, you know, we, but so, but, but yeah, so I don't know how that would work with toddlers, but I think with older children, um, playing, even playing games that might not seem age appropriate. If you're playing with them and talking to them about it, it might be a better approach than trying to, Keep them sheltered from the games because they're going to do it anyways later. So,
0: in terms of your parents' approach, apparently, if you prevent your kid from doing media stuff, they're going to get their PhD in it and do it for forever. So, <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, last comments
5: or, or
1: questions?
0: What are your favorite? Oh, uh, oh, yeah, wait, wait oh, sorry. Just um, a
2: short comment. I also only read the headline, um, but I had a completely different uh, like picture of this event and. Very thankful that it went this positive way uh, because I thought it's about esports uh, rise and um, gaming is the new thing and religion will transform somehow in gaming. So, um, but maybe you can like give a short comment on that also. So one of the things about religious studies is that no one, we haven't actually defined what religion is yet. You know, even though we've been doing it forever, uh, and so you could—I mean, I, I could see someone writing. There's a lot done on um, sports and religion, so I could see someone actually doing that. But that's not what we do. But I think you know. So I mean, basically, um, we're in Texas, right, where football is the main religion, right? <laughs> and so you could see how um, you could write about sports in that way. But I don't—I don't think it's been done with esports. It's an interesting thing. I don't know. And last question. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. yeah.
3: One. one favorite game. Can I have one? Can I have two?
0: This is the question that I'm most terrified. <laughs> <careful.
3: laughs> no, one. One. That's a yeah. rule. It's a procedural rhetoric. One, one.
2: I, I think it's got to be Civilization, actually. that would be. That's the game I keep coming back to. But so. mm. Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that, that, was,
3: that was a cheat.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: one. Katamari demasi. Uh-huh. Katamari de Damacy.
0: Oh, I'm going to go classic. Legend of Zelda. Ocarina of Time. For forever and ever. I could play it over and over.
3: Thanks a lot for coming. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: thank you.